Welcome to the First Take, First Web Farmers weekly uh, biopharma news discussion. My name's Simon King. I've got my colleague, uh, Michael Flanagan, with me today. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Simon. So there's only one real place to start this week uh, in terms of news. Um, we finally uh, got to see how Biogen's uh, Aduhelm is performing commercially in the US market. Just to give a bit of context, it was approved by the FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease back in June. And really, I guess if you exclude anything related to COVID-19 vaccines, you can probably say that the, the subsequent controversy around that approval, um, the critique of, of the role that the FDA has played, um, and all those kind of subplots that have kind of happened since has probably been uh, the biggest news story of the year, I would say, Michael. Would you be in agreement on that one? Yeah, I think so. I think I think uh, we sort of expected it to be that, and uh, I think it's lived up to its controversial uh, nature, yeah. And in that respect, you know, the headline figure this week when Biogen announced its Q3 results was that sales for the quarter were about $300,000. Um, Wall Street analysts were predicting or were modeling that sales may have been up to $15 million. I, I don't think anyone that's been kind of tracking this too closely is probably surprised that, you know, the actual sales of Aduhelm are, are a mu much lower than that uh, because there's been kind of media reports saying that, you know, there's been a few hundred patients that most have been, have been treated. Um, Michael, what, what was your kind of take on on what Biogen was saying about the performance to date and, and how they kind of see it moving forward over the coming months? You know, I, they've been pretty consistent in, you know, what they've been saying, which is that, you know, not a lot of people are getting on it. They're, they're blaming sort of the media coverage for a lot of that. Um, but, you know, I, we've talked about this before. It's not just that. There's obviously some serious questions about the drug's profile. Um, so I, I'm not surprised. I guess 300,000 just sort of struck me as, I don't know, kind of remarkably low, given some of the sales projections that analysts have suggested in the future, admittedly. But um, it's, I guess it's just not a surprise. And um, everything is looking to the future. You know, it's interesting that they are, they being Biogen, are probably kind of looking to their competitors to shore up their profile at this point. They're probably looking to data from, you know, Eli Lilly, from Roche, to really help sort of uh, substantiate and solidify their own profile for Aduhelm, um, which is an interesting situation to be. Uh, but really, the, the big, you know, decisions are going to come in January when when the NCD comes down for Medicare, and then the, that's the draft, and then the final one in April. So that's those are the big shoes to drop for for Aduhelm, I think, at this point. Yeah, I mean that seems when I listened to the to the conference call that they did this week, that seemed to be their kind of their main focus. Um, you know, and there's lots of I guess there's lots of narratives that kind of fit around this. You know, one being that 
that they don't seem to anticipate that there's going to be a huge utilization of Adu Helm until April when they get this this final um, NCD decision from Medicare. And there's obviously been a bit of discussion in the background. I think there's you know there's different there's different variables that could play out with that decision. So you know on the basis that it's a positive decision for Adu Helm, they you know they have suggested that at that point there's going to be um, you know, they they did caution that they don't think that's going to drive an explosive, you know, increase in, in use of Aduhelm, but it would drive a stepwise increase, you know. So they are suggesting that, you know, the lack of that coverage determination at the moment is the primary factor that's holding back utilisation. Um, I think what investors, are, you know, are obviously have got to decide is whether that's a truly accurate you know, picture of what is holding back adoption at this point. You know, as you alluded to, there are question marks about profile of the drug. And actually, at one point during the call, there was a concession of sorts. Um, I can't remember the, the the lady's name, but she's the head of Biogen's US operations. And she, she, she suggested that, you know, actually, physicians are falling into kind of two camps two broad groups you know there's one which are you know suggesting that when when this medicare decision is made that will open up and they will use it more than they have been and then there's another group of physicians who are not yet convinced about using it so i think that is that is uh you know clearly still a big issue for the drug i think the you know the point you've just made is really interesting actually you know is this kind of catch 22 situation for biogen really and the company's being, you know, like, like you mentioned, is being quite upfront about this. You know, they're saying that the Medicare decision is one that's going to affect all um, uh, beta amyloid uh, monoclonal antibodies in late stage development. So in a, in a sense, you know, that, that decision, if it's positive, is opening, opening a gate not only for Biogen, but potentially for Roche and Eli Lilly. But the company is also saying that as the data sets for those products um, read out that that is going to potentially enhance um, physician sentiment to the drug class as a whole, and you know, and 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 Adu Helm could benefit from that. I think the issue that some analysts are argue, arguing already um, is that if those other products appear to be better in the eyes of physicians, they could quite quickly overtake Adu Helm. You know, and actually we could have a situation where Biogen has done a lot of the, the heavy lifting from a kind of logistics perspective, only to see competitors kind of come through and overtake them. And obviously, with, with you know, with, with Biogen kind of conceding that they're in something of a holding pattern until April uh, next year, you know, that kind of, that market exclusivity that Aduhelm has obviously sort of, you know, it, it, it kind of uh, shrinks in size really in terms of you know when competitors could come to the market because i think there's a chance isn't there that eli Lilly could actually get their their product approved next year as well yeah <clears throat> they've they've said that they're going to file this year <clears throat> we haven't seen it yet but but they say they're going to do it this year so it could be out there next year and i don't think that they have to show superiority in any sense you know they don't they don't need they just need to show that they're basically kind of doing the same thing that Biogen says Adi Helm is doing. Because if they do that in like a clear 
manner, there's so much controversy surrounding Edgehelm and so many questions about the phase three trials that if, if Eli Lilly comes with a, a pretty, like a cleaner uh, data set, you know, I think that they're going to be in a, in a better spot. And then you add in this, the uh, Roche, which has uh, a subcutaneous. So gantanarumab is, is subcutaneous, which is, you know, a, a huge step forward versus these um, infusible intravenous products from, from Eli Lilly and Biogen. So if they just come and do the same thing that Eli Lilly and Biogen have already shown, and they just do that, but with a, a far sort of more convenient option, like you're right, like Biogen could be in a real tough spot. They've done a lot of the, the heavy lifting to get sort of the, the ball rolling on a, in a commercial sense for these anti-amyloid antibodies. And then these new, newer, quote unquote better, maybe just the same, but sort of stronger evidence-based products come through, like they could be, uh, they could be out of luck. I mean, I suppose the other thing to add, you know, from Biogen's perspective is that they've got follow-up drugs in development for Alzheimer's disease. Um, they've got one, the name of it escapes me, um, it's 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 in partnership with with ISI again, I believe. I think there's pretty positive phase two data, or certainly phase two data that Biogen believes is positive. So there's there's more to come from their pipeline, um, and I guess there are going to be a, you know once that competition kind of intensifies, there's going to be a lot of moving parts. One of the interesting things this week, because Roche's third quarter call happened to be taking place simultaneously to Biogen's. And the same thing occurred actually back in back in July when they were both announcing their Q2 results. And on that occasion, Roche was taking the stance of, you know, we're not going to we're not going to file our product until we've got phase three data. We're not going to look for any kind of accelerated approval. And I think there's a, you know, there's a good argument in favour of that because it's it's had some failed studies previously in sort of slightly different populations, et cetera. So I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a good reason to be cautious with any of these products. You know, we've seen the controversy that surrounded Aduhelm, but it felt very much three months ago that Roche, by saying that, was also, you know, taking a pretty easily accessible sort of moral high ground almost, because obviously at, at that point, all of the media coverage around around Aduhelm uh, was really on, you know, focused on the fact that this approval had happened, and and maybe it was, you know, whether it was the right or the wrong decision. But the interesting thing, listening to Roche speak this week, was that there was certainly not a suggestion that they're definitely going to pursue accelerated approval, but there was the concession from their head of pharmaceuticals that negotiations or discussions are ongoing with regulators and if a path presents itself which which both the company and the regulator in question felt was feasible to potentially get that drug to patients you know before waiting for phase three data it was definitely suggested that 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 is not a course of of action that is is going to be completely prohibited from Roche's part so definitely something to kind of keep an eye on. I just wanted to mention as well, it's been a pretty news heavy week for Biogen. Um, one of the other drugs that the people have been looking at closely is that ALS candidate. I know, Michael, you 
you wrote a story about this this week. The data was presented last Sunday. There was sort of suddenly a lot of excitement about this. I think a lot of people actually felt because of the way that investors and, and uh, you know were told that the data was sort of suddenly coming at a conference that people thought it was going to be positive, but it actually failed to hit its primary endpoint in that study. Yeah, um, pretty disappointing. I think you know just the the way that the this molecule it was an RNAi you know illegal nucleotide. Um, just the way it was sort of designed and meant to go after this very specific, um, you know, mutation, uh, people really sort of had high hopes for it. And, you know, it missed the primary endpoint on this, um, you know, on this functional scale uh, versus placebo. So that is pretty disappointing. You know, Biogen sort of talked about how it's, you know, it showed some hints here and there and everything. But like the fact that it missed the primary endpoint is is pretty disappointing, pretty big. Um, and even if it had worked, so even if it you know had been a just a just sort of a breakthrough on efficacy, we're talking a very very small uh, sub you know population within the ALS community. It's like two percent of of ALS patients. So you know the commercial prospects for this were not like you know massive, but you know people had had hope for this and it seems kind of kind of disappointing so yeah that's that's not great uh both for Bijan and Ionis which you know is who they they licensed it from and the other news that was relevant this week was another another drug that the Biogen has decided not to in license but is is co-developing and will co-market potentially is the depression drugs uranolone, which is being developed by Sage Therapeutics. I mean, a few years ago, the excitement around this product was was pretty high, actually. Um, it's run into a few difficulties in the last couple of years, which I guess if we're being if we're being charitable, you know, you you kind of always expect um, with, with with drugs that are being developed for the treatment of depression. But the, the, the news this week that was quite notable was that um, Sage and Biogen have said that they're looking to file um, this product with presumably initially with the FDA, but also with other regulators um, in the sort of second half of next year. And they have slightly pushed back a, a data readout, which is looking at Zuranolone um, in combination with um, traditional antidepressant therapy. Um, that's a study that's, that there's going to be some some new phase three data that's going to read out early next year, which I guess is going to inform the regulatory filings. I mean, Biogen Management mentioned this product briefly on, on the conference call they did this week to announce that, to discuss their Q3 results. Obviously, as expected, that call was dominated by the Aduhelm discussion. But it's it's still an interesting molecule to me. You know, it's this idea that you can um, you can get this incredibly fast response. Um, and this idea of sort of treating depression patients sort of intermittently, I think, is something that I guess, you know, you've you got to give Biogen and Sage credit for. They are trying to do something disruptive, but there does seem to be a bit of scepticism, I guess, that, um, you know, the treatment of depression is by, you know, is far from perfect in the current circumstances. But 
you know, it, it's typically on an ongoing basis. And I think this idea of, of using something in sort of short bursts, there's, there's still perhaps, you know, a bit more understanding necessarily necessary to sort of see how that's actually going to play out in the future. But interesting, nevertheless, and, and seems to be that whatever Biogen's doing is always quite interesting. Um, although, personally, I... I think it's it's quite fascinating now how whenever you're looking you're looking at any of their products, the sort of the shadow of how Aduhelm has progressed from late stage studies to the market now seems to be cast quite dominantly over over anything. You know, even with the ALS stuff, Michael, there's kind of you know an immediate sort of suggestion that they could still look to file this with regulators despite the fact that it it's missed that primary endpoint. So. I think you know there's definitely going to be some baggage that that, that comes you know with Biogen now you know that, that comes from the whole situation with Aduhelm. Um, yeah, you you would think that they'd be getting the benefit of you know this huge sales bolus from the Aduhelm, you know, for dealing with the controversy, but they're not even getting that at this point, which is sort of a double-edged, not even a double-edged sword. It's just sort of a a lose lose. <laughs> well, on that front, I mean, if we think that the sales were three hundred thousand dollars in Q3, and let's assume that there's a, a not dissimilar sales figure for for Q4. Uh, pretty sure Biogen said this week that, that their sort of cost of selling Aduhelm this year is about half a billion dollars. So you know they are. It, it's you know that they, they're committed. They said that they're in this for the long haul. Um, and obviously, you know, they hope the situation improves post April next year when they get this, what they consider to be uh, and this all important, you know, Medicare designation. Um, I'm slightly sceptical on a personal level that, that that in itself is, is going to be the kind of the catch-all solution to this. I think, you know, the conversations we've had with KOLs, the, the surveys we've run, I think there is you know, there, there, there's a healthy scepticism about the, the, the efficacy and the efficacy safety trade-off of that product. Um, just moving on, a couple of weeks ago, we had some pretty exciting data for a COVID-19 antiviral um, that's being developed by Merck and Co and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics. That data prompted lots of speculation about the potential size of of the market for, you know, straightforward antiviral pills that can be used to treat, you know, treat patients with COVID-19, I guess patients who haven't been vaccinated, that that seemed to be the discussion, you know, that with a, that would be the potential sort of commercial cohort of patients that could benefit from these. And that immediately put the focus on sort of subsequent readouts. But the data for a second antiviral being developed by, by Roche, and an ATIA, um, that wasn't so positive. What what's the story there, Michael? What are the sort of what's the thought process, you know, for why that drug has not hit the heights of the Merck and the the Ridgeback one? Well, if you, if you listen to analysts, it sounds like perhaps uh, the biggest difference between these two molecules and the way they're being developed was the the design of the trial. So uh, ATA or ATIA, I, I actually don't know how to pronounce the, the company, they they ran a phase two trial <clears throat> um, in mild to moderate, you know, outpatients. And 
what they the big difference between their study and the Merck slash Ridgeback study, which was positive and showed, you know, a significant reduction in mortality and hospitalization. So the big difference was that Merck and Ridgeback did not allow patients to be, you know, vaccinated, I think was the main, the main difference. Um, and Atia did allow patients who had been vaccinated to, to come into the study. And um, basically the, the Atia drug candidate just didn't work. I mean, you know, it, it missed the primary endpoint on the reduction of viral load versus placebo, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's what you need from an antiviral. So that was clearly um, very disappointing. And the shares were just crushed. I think they lost two thirds of their value um, in one day. So, you know, analysts are suggesting that perhaps it was the study design and not the molecule itself, because the molecules that itself, they're both uh, nukes, right? So they're both, they both work in a similar fashion. Um, it is slightly different in, in their mechanism, but you know, they're for all intents and purposes, they're the same sort of drug. Um, so the fact that it didn't work is a big surprise, big disappointment. Uh, if analysts are correct and, you know, it was a desi study design thing, then best case scenario, what this will do is push out, you know, the, the data, the, the important phase three readout for the, the ATIA drug by about a year, maybe, um, which, you know, basically would give Merck just a huge advantage. I mean, so this is a, this is a, a big deal for Merck. This is why Merck was up two or 3% on the day that uh, ATIA announced this because, you know, this, this drug was going to be a, a clear sort of head to head competitor with the, the Merck Ridgeback uh, option and uh, it's just not going to be available for at least a year longer than, than people thought, which is important um, because the just the way the pandemic is playing out, the way people sort of think it's going to play out, the Merck Ridgeback drug is going to be available probably shortly, and it'll be available sort of during the peak, um, you know, the end of the real pandemic before it becomes like whatever the next <laughs> phase of the pandemic is. Um, so it's, it's basically this Merck drug is probably going to be the dominant nuke player for that, uh, phase of the, of the pandemic. And it's probably going to be a huge seller. There might be combination with other antivirals coming. Uh, we'll see about that, but this is, this is a big deal, especially for, for Merck Ridgeback. And then on the other side, not just Atia, but it was partnered with Roche. Um, so this is a, a, a big disappointment for them. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll see where, where things go from here. And I guess the next thing to look out for in this field is the, I believe it's Pfizer, who obviously are, you know, dominating the, the COVID-19 vaccine market, but they have an antiviral um, that's being developed. And I believe their data reads, reads out next. And I, I'm also pretty sure that they've, They've done the same as Merck and Ridgeback, and they've excluded people who've been vaccinated from their study. So if it's as simple as that, you know, that could be a very, very good decision on Pfizer's part, you know, versus obviously the, the design of the ATR and the Roche study. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it has billions of dollars in potential sales ramifications, unfortunately. I mean, I think, I think just sort of casting my mind back a couple of weeks when that Merck and Ridgeback data read out, I think analysts were suggesting that the market for these antivirals could be 
uh, you know, five to six billion dollars. Obviously, you know how sustainable that is. Um, it, it, you know, is a big question. But um, I'm also I'm also pretty sure the other thing that we've got to keep an eye on is I think there's there's an FDA advisory committee meeting coming up where they're going to discuss the Merck antiviral. And I think it was also announced in the UK yesterday that there's been a deal struck um, with the UK government to, to source some of that as well. And I'm sure we'll see similar agreements uh, with other countries around the world with Merck doing that. That's definitely going to be something to keep an eye on in the future. Um, the last story I kind of wanted to touch on this week, um, we seem to write less and less about biosimilars, certainly compared to, to what we did, you know, maybe three or four years ago. But there was some pretty big news this week, um, actually, perhaps right at the tail end of last week, with Boehringer Ingelheim announcing that the FDA has approved their biosimilar version of Humira, uh, which is marketed by AbbVie, anti-TNF inhibitor, you know, sales of around $20 billion a year. It's, it's the world's biggest selling pharmaceutical product by, by some margin. Um, the Boehringer Ingelheim biosimilar version is called Sile Tezo. It was approved a couple of years ago. For those who don't know, there's a handful of, of Humira biosimilars that are poised to launch in the US market at various points in 2023. But the, but the Boehringer Ingelheim biosimilar has become the first that's been has almost received a kind of secondary FDA approval as an interchangeable biosimilar version of Humira. And essentially what this means, uh, you know, is that it can be auto-substituted by a pharmacist for the reference product, which is branded Humira. And then depending on individual state laws, uh, physicians are either notified of that, the prescribing physician is either notified of that decision by the pharmacist to to also substitute it or they're not. That depends on, on the state that, that, that the prescription is taking place in. Um, but this just, you know, but the, the few analysts I spoke to, this is a pretty landmark, you know, this is, a, this is a pretty major decision by the FDA because I think there's been some real question marks in the past as to whether, you know, we would actually get to this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so not to cut you off, but basically, you know, monoclonal antibodies are, incredibly complex proteins so you know the the you know the concern or at least the the worry was that fda would just not feel like these uh, similar products were interchangeable you know it's like how much evidence um would you need to show to you know to prove the you know absence of of evidence of difference obviously it's tough so the fact that they have proved this as interchangeable the first one is a real big step forward you know they they proved i saw in your story that uh, lantus the the insulin product they approved an interchangeable biosimilar of that but that's obviously not anywhere near as complex as a monoclonal antibody so this is a a big step forward um from a you know sort of an academic type sense although from the when the rubber hits the road you know, we're not talking about a big change happening today or tomorrow or next week with Humera because, you know, AbbVie has these agreements in place 
um, where the interchangeable, well, interchangeable and non-interchangeable biosimilars are not actually coming to market. They're not going to be available um, broadly and publicly until 2023. So, you know, there's there's some discussions to be had in the next year or two about the impacts that that will take place. Because I mean, sure, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of them, uh, but it's not going to. It's nothing that's going to happen, you know, very soon. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking to that point of the complexity of, of, of monoclonal antibodies versus, you know, products like insulin, I think there were, there were a lot of eyebrows raised a few years ago when the FDA um, announced its guidance about biosimilars, because in Europe, where obviously biosimilars are now pretty well established and, and used frequently, interchangeability happens um i think depending on the market but interchangeability isn't something that's really regulated by by regulators as such it's just in individual markets you know prescribers and pharmacists and whoever can choose to 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 substitute the product like they would with a generic so there's never been a kind of a separate interchangeability guidance and i think when the fda announced that they were doing that I think that, you know, I think there were two questions. I think number one was, has the FDA kind of sort of almost bitten off more than it needs to really by, by, by sort of, you know, asking for this, you know, and then number two, I, or I guess number two and number three, you know, are companies going to do it? Are they going to go that extra mile to secure the interchangeability status? And then, and then number three, you know, is, is what, the, what those companies going to do? Is it going to be enough to satisfy the FDA's demand? So, I think in that respect, it's it's a major kind of breakthrough. In terms of the commercial implications, we're, we are obviously, you know, sort of more than 12, you know, we're looking more than 12 months into the future. I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. You know, if you, if you listen to what AbbVie are saying themselves, they've kind of changed their position in recent years on, on, on biosimilar Humira and the impact of it. And I think that's been probably influenced by two factors. I think that they've seen the continued adoption of biosimilars in Europe, which I guess is probably as a narrative is being seen in the US and and, and the the potential for biosimilars to sort of increase access and reduce costs (coughs) is probably growing. I think from AbbVie's perspective, they've launched a couple of products that look likely to sort of fill the revenue gap in the next five to 10 years. Then they've launched Rinvoc, they've launched Skyreezy, which are products which are operating in the same markets as Humira and uh, look to be superior in terms of efficacy. And then I think that we have seen, certainly with certain types of biosimilars in the US market, and I'm really talking, I am talking about the oncology um, biosims, you know, of the MABs that are marketed by Roche, things like Avastin, uh, Herceptin and Rituxan, we've seen much faster adoption of the oncology biosimilars in the US than we have seen with previous um, sort of anti-TNF biosimilars. So I think there's been a few moving parts which have kind of shifted AbbVie's sort of outlook, and they've gone from being... Um, I would say quite defensive about the impact that biosimilars are going to have on Humira to sort of almost flip-flopping in the other direction. And they're now saying that they think within the first 12 months of biosimilar 
uh, Humira products becoming available, that prescriptions for the branded version will be eroded by around 50% in the US market. So that's quite a dramatic decline. And I think the other thing to factor in there is that, you know, Humira is, as we mentioned up front, it generates a huge amount of revenues. And the flip side of that is there's a huge amount of expenditure on Humira. You know, it's a very, very well-established product. AbbVie has done an amazing job at getting it approved in multiple indications and really driving home with, with their sort of physician education what a fantastic product it is. You know, if you speak to key opinion leaders across multiple disease areas, they all cite Humira as being, you know, the best or one of the best products that's available in those disease areas. So, you know, it's it's no surprise that this is going to be potentially a, a really big, big trigger for sort of biosimilar adoption in the US market. But the important thing that Abby said when they're sort of talking about their 50% erosion rate for the branded version is they think themselves that interchangeability status is going to play a key part in that. They don't really quantify it in terms of numbers, but they're saying that by 2023, there will probably be, based on their models, two interchangeable biosimilars of Humira on, in the US market, and that will play a key role in driving that rapid erosion rate. Now, the flip side of that, is that we can assume that AbbVie's talking about a second interchangeable product, which is being developed by Alvatech, who I believe are an Icelandic company, and they're working with Teba. Now, the interesting thing from Alvatech's perspective is that their biosimilar version of Humira is actually a biosimilar version of a higher concentration of branded Humira, which was launched by AbbVie about three years ago. Now, if you look at adoption of that, it now accounts for about 90% branded Humira use. And Alvatech's position is that if they successfully launch their product, it will come to market, number one, as being interchangeable because that's the status that they're pursuing. But they're also arguing that it's going to be the only interchangeable version of higher concentration Humira. And in their view, that's going to be a kind of, uh, you know, a competitive advantage even over Bowringer's um, biosimilar, which is interchangeable. And then obviously the other different biosimilar versions of Humira, you know, all, the, all of the others that are, that are prepped for launch in 2023 are not interchangeable. Now, there's some kind of debate going on. I think Boehringer has petitioned the FDA about its interpretation of the term strength because its argument is, is that the normal, the original concentration and the high concentration versions of Humira both contain the same total drug content you know, per vial. So there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a legal thing going on in the background here, you know, and obviously, we've got to wait to see if Alvatech actually gets approval for its biosimilar. But I, my takeaway from this would probably be that certainly from a regulatory standpoint, that's that's the biggest impact, um, you know, in my opinion, is that the FDA has approved this. And there is an argument. I think there's there's probably going to be an argument in time as whether all biosimilar monoclonal antibodies become interchangeable, you know, whether by Boehringer doing this, you see other companies doing it, and it becomes almost um, 
you know, the standard approach rather than the exception to demonstrate that your product is interchangeable with the branded product. Yeah, you'd like to think so anyway. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for joining me this week, Michael. And thanks to everyone for listening. Um, please like um, and follow and obviously uh, subscribe. But again, most of all, thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.